Thank you for joining us for this episode of the IPI Policy Basics Podcast. We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation, and I'm joined today by our resident scholar, Dr. Merrill Matthews. And today's topic for the Policy Basics Podcast is Where Do Our Rights Come From? Now, Dr. Matthews, this is an excerpt from a talk that I've given to a lot of groups over the years, and it's, it's a subject that I'm really fond of. And a lot of times I'll start off just by sort of asking people in the audience, like, you know, tell me where our rights come from. Does anybody say my wife? Uh, no, nobody does. Um, every once in a while, particularly if it's in front of a conservative audience or something, someone will say, you know, my rights come from God, mm-hmm. right? Which I'm not going to argue with. Um, but I would say at least 80 or 90 percent of people will say our rights come from the Constitution. Mm -hmm. They'll either say the Constitution or the Bill of Rights, right? So one of the things we want to talk about in this podcast is the fact that our rights do not come from the Constitution or the Bill of Rights. And we're going to go back and talk a little bit about the history of the Constitution and the history of the Bill of Rights to sort of illustrate why that is. Um, That, in fact, our rights, and if you read the document, the document overtly states this, that our rights come either from the creator, Mm -hmm. which pretty much all the founders believed, Uh, even some of the founders who were who were not, you know, of a Christian religious belief system still believed the idea that mankind has inherent dignity and that that's where our rights come from. But really, none of the founders thought that our rights come from a document. And when they were writing the Constitution and even when they were writing the Bill of Rights, uh, they did not think they were granting American citizens rights. What they were doing, and again, the language of the document says this quite explicitly, that government is formed to protect and to preserve those rights, but government does not grant those rights. So in essence, was it attempting to identify the rights that they that they have by some other purpose? Well, that's the most fun part of this conversation to me, because you have several of the founders uh, uh, Madison was one, um, and uh, Jefferson was one, who argued that it is impossible to list out all of the rights of man. It's impossible. Mm. The idea is that there's almost like this universal set of rights that we have, and it's impossible to enumerate them because you 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 have all the rights essentially. Uh, there's a, um, a a constitutional law professor named Randy Barnett who mm-hmm. I very very highly value. And Randy calls this the presumption of liberty in the Constitution. There's, a, there's an assumption that you have all the rights. You have almost any right you can imagine, obviously, so long as it doesn't you know, violate someone else's rights. And we did a podcast not too long ago. We did an IPI Policy Basics podcast on the idea that our rights are not absolute. Mm-hmm. There are limits to all of our rights. But the view of the founders was that our rights are so broad that it is impossible to enumerate them all. And that's why Madison was initially opposed to the Bill of Rights. There were you know, two groups going on during the founding. There were the Federalists and there were the Anti-Federalists. Mm-hmm. And the Federalists were, were, po- were positively disposed toward the Constitution. The Federalists were the champions of the Constitution. The Anti-Federalists were skeptical. They weren't necessarily totally opposed, but they were skeptical. And so where that conflict really came to a head was over the issue of the Bill of Rights. And James Madison said that a Bill of Rights is not necessary. And he also said 
that the Bill of Rights was dangerous. And the quotation from Madison about the danger of having a Bill of Rights was that the idea that if we enumerate rights in the Constitution, people will think that those are the limits of their rights. Mm -hmm. And people will think that their rights are coming from the document. And I would argue that that's exactly what has happened over time, Mm -hmm. that people think their rights come from the Constitution. They think they come from the Bill of Rights. So I think Madison was correct about that, that if we include a Bill of Rights in the Constitution, that will over time lead to the idea that, A, Americans' rights come from a document, and B, that their rights are limited to the enumerated rights in the Bill of Rights. But the anti-federalists insisted on a Bill of Rights as part of the deal for the Consti- to actually sign on to the Constitution. And so, you know, where there, there were committees set up and there were negotiations that went on, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it was out of this dispute, this idea that are our rights limited to those that are enumerated or not, that's where the Ninth and Tenth Amendments came from. And the Ninth Amendment essentially says that the rights of Americans are not limited to the ones enumerated in this Bill of Rights. Mm-hmm. And then the Tenth Amendment says all other rights are reserved to the people and to the states. And so the whole reason you have a Ninth and Tenth Amendment was in anticipation of the fact that there are more rights than just the ones that are outlined in the Bill of Rights. And I think that's the best way to sort of understand the meaning of the Ninth Amendment is that it's designed sort of as a catch-all, and it is designed to express the concerns about Madison and Jefferson that we don't want people to think that these are the only rights that they have, is the ones that are in, you know, in, the, in the first you know, eight amendments to the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. It was, there's another very interesting quote, and this is from Hamilton, and he wrote this in Federalist 84. He said, a bill of, bills of rights are, in their origins, stipulations between kings and subjects. Uh, They are lists of the rights not surrendered to the prince. So even Hamilton understood that there's a danger that if you do a Bill of Rights, it almost looks like the result of a negotiation between the people and their rulers. And of Mm -hmm. course, our founders didn't view the government as our rulers because we had a system of self-governance, not being ruled by others. And I think this is one of the things about the Constitution that, that is most interesting and that most misunderstood, this idea that not all the founders were on board with the idea of a Bill of Rights, because they didn't want people to think that that's, that's where their rights come from. Now, there's a really good, I think, illustration of this misunderstanding, and that is that I don't know about you, but I grew up as a conservative always hearing that what was wrong with Roe v. Wade the abortion decision, Mm -hmm. was that the Supreme Court manufactured a right to privacy that does not exist in the Constitution. Mm -hmm. And so I grew up with the belief that the reason Roe v. Wade was wrongly decided was that they invented a right to privacy that's not in the Constitution. But if you think about that, the Fourth Amendment is all about your right to privacy. It's all about your right to be secure in your papers and uh, against unreasonable search and seizure and all these sorts of things. So obviously we have a right to privacy. So, you know, I would argue that we have a right to privacy and it's covered in the Ninth Amendment, right? That obviously we have a right to privacy. And when you actually look, for instance, at what like even Ruth Bader Ginsburg admitted that Roe v. Wade had been wrongly decided, but it wasn't because, you know, the the creation of a right to privacy that doesn't exist in the Constitution, it was because the federal government got into something that should have been left to the states. So 
I understand your your situ- what you're saying about the broader rights, mm-hmm. but aren't there some more specific rights? For instance, if you have a constitutional right to be to have an attorney, if you can't afford one, right? That's that doesn't strike me as a as a metaphysical right that I have inherent in me. It sounds like something that we provide right. for that we've decided. So it strikes me that there's some in there that we do provide some rights, but those are all based upon maybe broader rights. Well, you know, you obviously we have enumerated rights, right? So we talk about the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, you know, and all those sorts of things. Um, I, I often chuckle. Is it the Third Amendment that is about no quartering of troops and houses? I think so. Not a ton of Third Amendment jurisprudence, right? And, and, <laughs> there, and, there's and not that, a ton of Third Amendment lawyers out there. And that would be one where I, it would be hard for me to say there is a fundamental, uh, whether from God or someplace yeah. else, Right for you not to have troops quartered in your house. Right, right, exactly. We're, so, so we would look at that, and we would say that's clearly not as, as you said, I think metaphysical and sort of important as like free speech mm-hmm. or religious freedom or something like that. But this is what we mean when we talk about enumerated rights versus unenumerated rights. Right, the enumerated rights are the ones that are spelled out in the Bill of Rights. But then you've got this whole, you know, to use a Texas word, you've got this whole passel of other rights that are not enumerated. But they're still asserted, and they are maybe developed over time. In fact, there's a founder, I think it was Elbridge Geary, who said, we must not preclude the creation of new rights in the future that we cannot even anticipate now mm-hmm. at the time of the founding. Yeah, that was gerrymandering. He was, <laughs> well, he was the founder yes, of that. Yes, exactly. That's, that's exactly right. There's a phrase that comes out of the founding that I just love, and the idea was that and this goes back to this idea of we have all the rights and we have all these unenumerated rights and the presumption of liberty. And the idea was that we would have islands of government in a sea of liberty, that you would occasionally, you would occasionally encounter government power, but for the most part, you would spend your life sailing on a sea of liberty. Mm-hmm. And I can't help but think in the year 2021, to some degree, we've kind of turned that on its head. And it seems like now we have the occasional island of liberty in a sea of government, yeah. you know, where, where most of the time we're running into government rather than rather than liberty. So what we wanted to really emphasize in this relatively brief policy basics podcast is this idea that that our rights come before government. They logically precede government. The government does not grant us rights. Government is created to secure those rights. And of course, there's also this idea in the founding that when a government no longer functions to secure those rights, it is the right of the people to change that government mm-hmm. because it's no longer doing the job that the people have designated for it to do. Now, it may seem that we're sort of um, spending a lot of time on a fairly tedious point here, but if you believe your rights come from the government, mm-hmm. then what you're also believing is that the government can take your rights yes. away. Okay? And so that's why I think it's it's not just a detail of history or a philosophical debating point to make the point that our rights are not granted to us from government. They come from from God, from the creator, from the inherent dignity of human beings, whatever your philosophy or religion tells you, but they don't come from government. And if government doesn't function to continue to secure and to defend the rights of individuals, then it's the right of individuals to change that government. And as Americans, we have that blessed ability to do that. Uh, every time an election comes along, mm-hmm. right, we have the ability to influence and try to change that government that's not doing what we want to do. There's one other point in closing I think is worth making, 
we talked about the Ninth and Tenth Amendments mm-hmm. and why they're there and why they're important. Um, but there's one mistake that I constantly hear folks making along these lines, and I always try to correct it whenever it occurs to me. When we hear people talking about states' rights, mm-hmm. states don't have rights. States have powers. And when you read the Ninth and Tenth Amendment, they're carefully worded in that regard, that the people have rights, states have powers. And so there's really no such thing as states' rights. So every time I hear the phrase states' rights, I just want to kind of cringe because the founders were very careful about that, that they grant limited powers to the federal government. They grant limited powers to the states, but government does not have anything approaching the idea of a right. Only individuals, only people have rights. And so that's become a pet peeve of mine over time. So I just wanted to inject that in here. And that's the point of the enumerated powers. The people are ceding a certain amount of power to the federal Mm -hmm. government in order to run the government to to make sure we have a safe society or other things of that nature. But it's the people who are ceding it to the government. That's right. And and it's a good point to close on because the core reason, one of Madison's core reasons for thinking of Bill of Rights was unnecessary was that he said, if you read this Constitution, the whole function of this Constitution is to limit the federal government. And so we're we're limiting the federal government. We're putting it in a box, right? And everything else is fair game. Everything else is the sea of liberty that we're talking about. So the idea of a Bill of Rights is logically unnecessary. And I think he was right, that if you if you actually read and interpret the Constitution the way it's written, that it limits the power of government and basically reserves all other rights to the people, that you don't really need a Bill of Rights. Where he was probably right, though, in, in, or wrong, though, is that people, federal governments tend to try to go grow. People end up trying to put the power there. Yep. And even though there's these enumerated powers that are given to the federal government, Congress, I think, supersedes that all the time and grants the government power that it never was initially granted. As, as an intellectual exercise, it's kind of interesting to think if we didn't have a Bill of Rights like Madison originally wanted, would we be better off or worse off? Mm-hmm. And while I understand his logic, I kind of feel like we'd be worse off. Because yeah. think about how many times basic human liberties in this country have been preserved by the Supreme Court eventually just running into provisions of the First Amendment or the Fifth Amendment or the Second Amendment. Your guns would be taken away by now if there wasn't a Second Amendment. I think that's entirely possible. I think that's entirely possible. Well, thank you for joining us today for this Policy Basics podcast, Where Do Our Rights Come From? We hope that you've enjoyed it. We hope that it's thought-provoking. If you enjoy these Policy Basics podcasts, we would love for you to share them with friends, and we would love for you to give us a favorable review on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform. You can also help to sponsor them by becoming an IPI supporter through our Giving Society. Thank you again for joining us, and we will see you next time.